I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. This episode of Ramble Meets is sponsored by Bet365. I'm Paul Watson, football traveller and author. Paul, a very warm welcome to the Football Ramble studio. I've been looking forward to, to, to chatting to you for quite a long time. That's nice to hear. Yeah. I, don't, I don't hear that often. <laughs> no, is that right? I'm sure that's not true. Um, I'd like to set the scene for, for our listeners, if I may, just in case there are some people out there who aren't entirely sure about, um, about what, what you've done so far in your, in your career. Um, about 10 years ago or so, you, you were a freelance journalist and you decided that you would quite like to become an internationally capped football player. Um, so you started doing some research and one thing led to another and you found out that Pompeii, the tiny island in Micronesia in the South Pacific, needed um, some help, uh, kind of, and you then went on to become a manager of a team 50,000 miles away, whatever it is, <laughs> on your own um, with no, re- if, if you don't mind me saying, no real idea about what you were getting yourself in for. Yeah, that's probably flattering me. Um, <laughs> okay, right. <laughs> yeah, it sounds bad now I hear it back. It's a weird thing because because that is that is what I did uh, ten years ago. That was that was my my great plan was to finally get my international cap by finding the world's lowest ranked team. How good a footballer were you or are you? Um, really, I was not good enough to be anywhere near professional or even semi-professional right but i was also not bad enough for it to be hilariously funny okay right. so that was why the delusion was just about possible okay because i would my, my response to that was i'd always get myself into the most incredible shape you probably won't believe it looking at me now but i used to get into incredible shape so i'd at least be the fittest right okay. so you'd see a coach looking at me in pre-season because back in that the day i was doing it coaches usually just did running in pre-season yeah. that was still yeah. the old school way yeah so for all the running coaches would be looking at me and thinking ah oh, i've got someone here okay right balls would come out I'll be gone within a few weeks. <laughs> okay, right. Okay. So, I, but you, you have know. got you had enough about you to think. Do you know what? There must be a country somewhere that could have me as a player. Yeah, but I, I think it's a discussion that lots of people have. Maybe almost all football fans have at some point. Yeah. Um, the only thing that marked me and my my flatmate Matt out from everyone else is we were stupid enough to actually see it through and see it through sober. Because yeah, I think it's, yeah. it's it's the kind of conversation you hear in a pub. You have in a pub. It's you know England Andorra. And you get the kind of, well, we could be playing for Andorra conversations and yeah. everyone's had them. But we... You took that to its natural conclusion. We took it to its natural conclusion. Um, but as I say, it wasn't sort of like... It's not. If you see this as a sort of feature film, we have that discussion in a pub the next day we're on a plane. We were crazy enough to spend the next year of our lives sort of digging into it and making it the reality that it was. You know, mm. giving up a job, leaving a girlfriend behind. Those mm. kind of things that I think... Those are probably the, the the only things that marked us out from the the millions of other conversations around the world where mm. people people have that conversation. They get drunk, they go home, they forget about it. So, why did you settle on why did you settle on Pompeii, which I think is the furthest away you can pretty much get in terms of um, culture and distance? Well, yeah, it is more or less. It's about I suppose it's it's twenty six hours of flying away from here, which is more or less as far as you can go in flight terms. Yeah, um, but but actually, it could have been anywhere. This is the funny thing. It could have been. You know the Vatican, or it could have been Greenland, because what what happened was we we sort of went down the FIFA rankings like any sort of any football fan would do. You think, well, you're looking for the worst team. That's not going to be Andorra necessarily or San yeah. Marino. You've got to go to right to the bottom. And at that time, you know, you had Bhutan and Montserrat when they played the other final. They they, sure. they were sort of a, those kind of teams at the bottom. Yeah, all of them were clearly better than us. You know, you you wouldn't have to scratch far 
on you know the trusty Wikipedia, you, you'd look through former players or you'd look through a coach and you'd find someone in those professional or yeah. who clearly could could sniff us out within minutes. Yeah. So we gave up on the FIFA rankings and thought, well, that that's a clear sign to sort of get on with our lives. Yeah. But quite soon after that, we found the non-FIFA rankings and that effectively that moment would would change, I guess, the last 10 years of my life was mm. that we found that there's a lot of places that aren't recognised by FIFA. And whether that's uh, because they're not recognised internationally, whether they're disputed states, um, whether they've just never had a team, so they've never sort of taken the effort to do it. Um, there's a list and we went down that list and we thought by that point, we may as well go to the bottom of that one. <laughs> yeah, okay. um, and that was Pompeii, P-O-H-M-P-E-I. And we clicked through the link and it said on Wikipedia, they're widely regarded as the worst team in the world. They've never won a game. They've just lost on penalties to Yap recently, which yeah. is their neighbouring island. Of, yeah. Um, and they'd lost 16-1 to Guam in their last sort of big match. So we and, thought and Guam around that time, I believe, were li- the officially worst ranked team in FIFA for well, a bit, weren't they? It's dubious because the, the way the rankings work, it's off. It's not like there is one definitive worst a lot of the time. There's teams that are sort of tied at the bottom, hmm. uh, and there's also there's quite a lot of movement going on. So Guam Guam had this amazing meteoric rise. You know, they they went from being like Pompey was when I got there, with no real structure, very little in the way of resources, to being now a really decent Asian And that's to do with, team. because they're a US territory yeah. and they're funded by the US. So they're, they, they're not actually a model. They're often used as the model for that region. So, you know, you, you could be like Guam. Mm. Um, but in reality, Guam is actually part of the USA. It's not even, it, it has no status that, that marks it from the USA, except for the fact it's, you know, a long way away and clearly has a different kind of cultural identity sure. to it. But it, it's basically part of the US. So in terms of finding funding, mm. they find it much, much easier uh, and also they were involved in quite a lot of deals in the area that turned out to be quite dodgy. Right. Um, the president of their FA was quite recently banned from football. Right, uh, okay. But they're in and they're... He'll fit in at FIFA then, won't he? Yeah, he's doing great. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the other thing that Guam did, which was very clever, was they started scouting in the US for anyone with uh, heritage. Right. So a lot of their players, at the time that I was dealing with them, a lot of the players were, you know, Kimura, as they call it, they, they were from Guam in, in, a, in a very real sense in terms of their heritage but they were basically in high school in the US so the level was actually really Good. decent okay um, so they, they went a long way from but, but you settled on Pompeii yes you flew there took you 26 hours four or five different flights something like that yep um, and you, you you land in Pompeii you know it's quite literally the middle of nowhere it's a completely different cultural experience to anything you've been used to before mm. um uh, we should mention at this point um that your flatmate had taken up a role uh, a, a slot at a film school out in the US oh well, he he comes with me on the, at the start so he came with me at the start oh we came in the first then, time uh, right? yeah and then we we basically had this sort of trip that was effectively a recce trip that's uh, what of course you did apologies and that's right. yeah he came on that one with us with the guy who'd run football in Pompeii for uh, I, I suppose 10 years really, who was actually from Uganda. Um, and he, a guy called Charles Musana, mm. and he was the guy that we contacted on this mm. kind of end of this this whole find the worst team, play for them. Contacted him uh, and he said, well, I've just moved to London, so I'm not much used to you. Right. So we thought, you know, that's the most ridiculous coincidence. <laughs> yeah. met, met him in London and over a curry, he sort of said, you know, come on guys, in a very gentle way. He said, come on lads, you know. Yeah you're not really going to go and play for this team. Did lots get... of people say that to you? Did lots of people um, say, when, when, when you, were people kind of starting to get a little bit worried about you because you were you were very serious about doing it. Clearly you were making other plans. You you and Matt were, were, were cracking on. You were trying to find kits. You were trying to find funding. At any point did you think, you know what, this has been great, but I don't know if we can do this? Less than you think, I think. Right. I mean, one, once, uh, once we started the, the plan in motion, so we, we spoke to Charles. Charles said, look, you won't get a Micronesian passport. So Pompeii is one of the Micronesian states. Mm-hmm. So it's actually one of four islands that become, you know, officially a nation. So it's Yap, not... Chuk. Yap, Chuk, Koshrai and Pompeii. Koshrai, it, yeah. Now they're separated by huge stretches of ocean, a lot of them. So it's a really weird thing that they are one nation, but, mm. but they are. So uh, we were going out to Pompeii uh, and Charles was saying, look, you, you won't get a Micronesian passport. Uh, you have to marry a local, you have to learn the language and you have to renounce your own passport. And even then you probably won't get one. Mm. So we knew immediately. He said, you know, this moment he said, well, look, if you want to go and coach, the team's pretty much fallen apart. What they need is someone to come in and coach. And he thought, well, I'll go do that. Mm. But actually for me, that moment was a real shift in that, you know, the idea of playing was a bit stupid and Mm. I could see that even objectively at the time. It Mm. was a little bit of a kind of dream. Um, 
And from that moment, really, it was a year of thinking, well, I'm going to go and coach this team. I want to learn everything I can, learn from every coach I've had, really try and work out how to do that. Uh, so it wasn't really about playing, which I think probably made things seem a little bit more realistic for other people. Yeah. Uh, it was less of a kind of party anecdote, a yeah. little bit more like... But but honestly, y- y- people always laugh, but my biggest worry was someone else would get there first. Right. I, I honestly, if you say really? what I was most scared of was getting off that plane and seeing, I don't know, like seeing some jobbing manager from from the sort of uh, you know second yeah. division english manager yeah. out there <laughs> yeah think, oh, Alan Kerbish you know, Alan Kerbish yeah yeah because yeah. Kerbs needed a job yeah right um, yeah yeah imagine and then we would be completely ruined because obviously he would see through us we they wouldn't need us and we'd be stuck so is it fair to say those fears were unfounded though, they were very unfounded. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When, we, when we got there was one guy who was sort of coaching football who called himself the chicken man right um guy called Edwin, lovely guy, and had coached football very passionately for years, but had tried to merge it into his other favourite sport, which is wrestling. So right. he'd created this football wrestling cross. Um, they were the world leaders in that, presumably. Yeah, except, <laughs> except the sport couldn't be played by anyone who no. didn't want serious injuries. Um, yeah. So yeah, basically we got there and they were there was a, a sort of a... About six people who were playing regularly, maybe maybe ten or in total. And how many people were living um, on the island at the time? 30,000. So it's not tiny, tiny. It's wow. people have a, an image of it as being like you know you can walk around it. it it's yeah. actually relatively large for a, for a sort of small tropical island. Yeah, um, but th- there'll be six people out of thirty thousand is very very small. Very yeah, it was, it was a, a poor ratio. Yeah, but this was the thing. We'd gone there thinking, well, we were being told you know everyone's really excited. You could be overwhelmed by the number of people. And so I've been thinking, how, how do you coach hundred people? What do yeah. you do for hundred and fifty people own. with yeah. a drill? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that was my. I was on the plane drawing up session plans like an idiot, like right. somebody who's never coached you know anyone yeah. uh, try to drop a great session plan if there's a hundred people we get there and there's initially one person and then after about half an hour six people and we just had kick arounds but gradually they they grew and grew and grew mm. over the few weeks we were there people kind of got to know we were there and, and came out uh, and it was chaos it was it was unlike any football what was the standard it, it was absolutely impossible to define it because the way they played had no real resemblance to how we would play in some ways it was better it was mm. but the pitch is completely flooded all the time. Flooded. Yeah, so I remember so, when I read this, this pitch, because the, the climate is so difficult, it's one of the wettest places on earth, right? And, yeah. and you've got literally got frogs jumping all over the pitch. It, and it's everything. a toad habitat, yeah. Toad, so it's a sorry. toad habitat that they've put a football pitch on, basically. So it never drains out properly. Really wet place that we dismissed, again, in our pre-reading. We thought, well, third wettest in the world. You know, it's how bad could that be? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not even in the sort of automatic promotion spot. <laughs> no, yeah. But you get there and it's just, it's a marsh and it rains like it's the end of the world. And yeah. people just get on with it. Right. But for us, you know, we'd well-meaningly brought out all these boots. We're like, oh, you know, do you want to borrow some boots? Yeah. We're like, what do you boots? you play, got to play barefoot in this. Yeah. And a lot of the time you do because it's just so it's wet. impossible otherwise, yeah. So yeah, the, the football had taken on this sort of form that matched the, the conditions. And there were also just these other things going on, like, you know, p- people would occasionally just pick the ball up and boot it into the car park and celebrate. Because I guess it was just for fun, just just you right. know, to take the piss, basically. Right, okay. But because there was no structure, it was like people were just larking around. So someone would get through on goal uh, and blaze it as high over the bar as they could and sort of celebrate. And we learned that that sort of came from this psyche in their culture, uh, that there's a terror of failing and being seen to fail. Right. It's absolutely like you don't, you don't do that. It's taboo. So when faced with a situation where you've got an open goal or a good chance to score players would often get around that by just clearly trying to miss. By sort of saying, I can't fail if I don't play. Exactly. Sort of, they'd blaze it so far over, it's clear they weren't trying and they'd fall about in hoots of laughter. And that was great Hmm. until much later on when we were trying to build a more successful sort of <laughs> yeah. football programme yeah. you don't really want your star yeah. striker through on goal thinking how far can I blaze <laughs> no. I don't need any help do I? I don't do it on purpose it just happens to me well that's the thing I fitted <laughs> him very well there yeah, all I exactly. had to do was instead of doing a sort of angry reaction to yeah. my shots I just had to celebrate yeah no, exactly yeah <laughs> style it out so did you do you think that you've said that you underestimated the climate did you underestimate the cultural differences between what you were expecting and, and, and what was the reality um yeah, I think I did. I don't, I don't think you could quite have... You Prepared couldn't have yourself. overestimated them. Yeah, yeah, but I was ready to be an awkward, stumbling foreigner because I think that's sort of who I am. I'm pretty right. awkward and stumbling in life. So mm. I didn't go over there with a, a lot of... I, I would say I wasn't an arrogant kind of person and that, mm. that did help me. Uh, and I think I knew that I was pretty clueless. But that, again, kind of worked in my favour. I think if I'd been much more professional and slick 
but had a bit of an ego, mm. they would have despised me just because that really doesn't fit. Play, it okay. would have been very colonial, you know. Yeah, like, of course. You know, he's yeah, the yeah, white yeah. man. He's putting down cones. You all yeah. run around the cones. Never really went that way because I wasn't competent enough to be like that. <laughs> so it worked in your favour. <laughs> it basically. really did. And a lot of the times what I learned was that the times I was less competent and the times that my I, I sort of tried to do the right thing but botched it, they really liked that and respected it. So, you know, we, the pitch wasn't marked out. And, and after a little while, we'd set up a league. We, we'd got people all around the island to to come and play from different community groups in this mm. league. You had like four teams, didn't you? By the yeah, team? Uh, we made it up to six in the end. Right. Um, and basically, we'd, we'd cold called people. We even cold called the Mormons. We went into their hut and said, you know, do you want to come and play? I remember that bit in the book and they tried to convert you, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. sort of nil-nil draw. Right? Like, <laughs> so, do you want to play football? No. You, do you want to hear about the love of Jesus? No. Nil-nil. No. No, no. Okay. Nice to <laughs> see They you. did eventually play, though. Did and they? I, yeah. And I think they were American, right? So they, and yeah. they, they would have played at high school, so they might have had some sort of knowledge about the They game. were actually really quite good and yeah. quite vicious as well, surprisingly. They were, mm. they were real foulers. But what, what we did was, yeah, we went into different community groups and said to people, come and play. You know, you don't have to bring anything. We've got boots if you want them. We've got shin pads if you want them. They, they didn't. Um, you know, we'll teach you the rules if, if needs be. So the games initially were more like... They were sort of they were proper games, but we would be teaching the rules as we went along, which right. was which was quite a nice way of doing it. And eventually, the referees would become the local people who've been playing enough would start to want to referee and then want to be lines people. So we would eventually create a sort of self sufficiency there. But mm. initially, people just came and played, and they were very late, and they often just came with the wrong number of people. But it was it was a league, and and so we we decided let's. I say we. It's me and Dilshan, who's who's like the main passionate person on the island. Dilshan's the the, the star of the book. Yeah, and I, sure. and I really want people to go and buy the book and read it. And they need to prepare themselves for the energy and the passion and the, the just star quality of your man. He's Dilshan. Such a, just an amazing guy. Tell us a bit about him. Um, so he's a Sri Lankan, um, Sri Lankan twenty. I suppose he was early twenties at the time. Uh, and his family had moved from Sri Lanka during the civil war and moved. To Pompeii, so he found himself this tiny. Was that a regularly well-trodden no. path? No, and it was very odd. I think, like a lot of people, they'd ended up there through complete chance. I think his dad was a teacher and had looked for a job and just found this, this job at the college there and mm. just thought, oh, "I'll apply for it and see what happens." And is, got it. Is it quite idyllic um, there? Sorry to cut in. Yeah, but it's, it's quite beautiful. Yeah. Like it's, it's, so you'd have a nice life there. Yeah, it's it's an amazingly beautiful place. It's just shockingly beautifully green everywhere and there's there's like amazing ocean to the side there's no beaches no proper beaches but there right. are like see, stone beaches it's Cause, absolutely cause I, beautiful I, I went i spent a bit of time in fiji and the cook island and yeah. that felt like such a step change even from when i was living in near portsmouth at the time the 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 the, the, the pace of life is so slow oh, okay. it's it almost it's almost like you're you're brain clock the pace of your brain has to completely readjust itself it must be like that it's exactly like that and that's a really big part of acclimatisation was you'd have schedules you'd want everything done now 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 you know I I was coming from a London sort of life and I was still thought you know you set times you stick to times I was very I wasn't disciplinarian in that way as we said because I was trying to be quite soft in my approach but I was staggered by how much everything slows down and as you say you go to meet someone uh, and they're just not there at the time they say and two hours later they might show up and it's not a big deal. That's just, you know, you're on an island. Who, who so you just cares? got to adjust. You've got to adjust. So but we, Dilshan would seem to be like very on it, very keen. Well, the great very... thing was Dilshan was my middle man and this yeah. was why it worked perfectly. He was the link in that he knew all the island guys who'd been there, you know, for a long time. He knew them all. He even spoke sort of local language. He was respected and liked and he coached a lot of the young kids. And he was so, genuinely good at football as well. He was very good and he could have been a professional cricketer but they left his family left Sri Lanka as mm. he was so he took up football then really quite quite late mm. and just was brilliant amazing free kick striker mm. um, and just all the players loved him really lovely man like great guy but this was the key thing is I had this middleman who I could go have a beer with we'd sit there and we'd chat ideas with each other and if I suggested something that made sense in England but would be lunacy in Pompeii he would very gently say no mate like what um, well just anything like you know the the timing of the games and I'd sort of say well let's have a three o'clock kickoff and he'd say some people might get sunstroke mm. I'd say okay, okay is, yeah. is that, you know am I, is that silly and he'd say yeah I mean we don't really want anyone to die in the no. games do we I'd say, oh okay <laughs> yeah. right when would you suggest he'd say yeah. maybe we'll start about five and we'll yeah. tell everyone it's kicking off at three because then they'll turn up at five yeah, and you okay. know these little things and any t- and also shouting at players you can't shout at players it's just a massive cultural no-no, right. especially older players. And these are rules you don't learn until you get there. So no. I, I think I did shout at someone late on, you know, six months into coaching them, I shouted at someone. And it wasn't a nasty one. It was a kind of, please stop sort of 
kicking the balls over that fence because yeah. we've got three balls left. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, and it turned out he was older than me and he walked off and Dilshan was the guy who in the middle said, you've kind of committed a massive social faux pas, you're going to have to go to him and apologise. And I did. And, you know, you, you learn that way yeah. because you've got someone in the middle. Otherwise, I would have just thought, what He's a bit sensitive. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Well, good riddance. He's going to make it at this level. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. See what he does when Allardyce turns <laughs> Yeah, exactly. But, you know, it, it was great to have that middleman. So so we we set up the league and, and got people playing. And it was it was me and Dilshan marking out this pitch by hand with hand house paint. Mm. And you got Sunstroke doing that, did you oh, not? That was it. And so we did that. And all the... We'd got five of the local lads who really wanted to do it. And we were starting to get on. We were, we were you know, I could feel I was starting to gain some trust. And so... They were saying, well, when can we do it? And they said, well, we'll do it. We'll do it at 2 p.m. through to about 5. It takes about three hours. And they were saying, yeah, but you don't have to do it. You're the coach. You don't have to do it to me. And I was like, well, I can't. Like, that's, oh, yeah, exactly. that's not who I am. No, like, come yeah. on. So, and, so we all got out there with our paintbrushes we're painting. I was thinking, this is hot. How it's, hot was it? About 35 degrees. And, you know, I'm not terrible with heat, but you you, you know when you've gone past. You know yeah. when you're done. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I got that so early on. It was Did embarrassing. <laughs> so I thought, well, look. I can't cry off after 15 minutes now. Yeah. I might as well see this thing through. How bad could it be? Um, Did you have your T-shirt off? No, no. That, I, would have, I probably would have died if I'd done right. Genuinely. I right. mean, I, I lost a lot of the skin off my arms. Almost all... Did you have sun cream on? Uh, yeah, I did, but it, it, sun cream's useless in a place where it rains that much. Oh, okay, That is right. so damp in the environment that it, it comes okay, off. Okay, okay. So I burnt to a crisp. I was just absolutely done. Um... And I ended up getting boils, which are quite common on the island, but yeah. it's because my the shower was sort of brown water and it wasn't quite clean where so I had the shower. So I infected. So I I was coming back to the field thinking they are going to think, who is this guy to be sort of trying to take charge? He's covered in, like he's got boils on him. <laughs> he's bright red. His skin's peeling off. Yeah. It just looks terrible. Why didn't they say to you, look, boss, we can't do it during the day. Let's do it at 8 p.m.? You, yeah, but you couldn't really do it a lot of the evening because it would, usually it would either rain, yeah, um, or there were no floodlights, so oh, it okay. went dark very early. So you got no choice, but got no choice. And plus, they were working around their own work schedule, so I did really respect. You know, they okay. they had their obligations. I was just there to do football, right? Okay. So you know, I don't think they they did it to get me to burn, but they may have done. <laughs> Teach um, you a lesson. Trial by fire. Sort yeah, of thing. yeah. But, but what it did do is when I did start showing up, they people really kind of like me a lot more because it was yeah. like well you know this idiot so you earned something to burn himself it. to a crisp with us just was it worth it, to do it. <laughs> yeah probably. yeah I, I don't know i still there's still actually a patch on my back that will never recover uh, really like the top of my neck and i've still got very small bit i've got a boil scar on on uh this wrist and a boil scar on my knee uh, wow, okay. which, which will never go so I, t- I see them as my sort of Pompeii yeah. I'm, too, I'm too much of a wimp to get a tattoo that's like my Pompeii tattoo badge of honour yeah absolutely <laughs> and so and so you I mean I don't want to I don't want to give away the entirety of the book because I think that would be that would be counterproductive really because I, I do think people should read it but you you take the team to Guam and, and you and you and you kind of achieve what you set out to achieve and it's a quite an uplifting story Um is there any, because I want to move on after the break to, to some of the stuff you've done more recently, but is there any, what, what's the current status in Pompeii in terms of football now? Is, is, is there a programme happening there? Or It is, yeah. And and this is this is the, the frustration. It still, it still really haunts me, to be totally honest. The, the, the whole plan is, you know, you don't want to go do something that's completely unsustainable, leave and it disappears. Yeah. So we... You set up a legacy, right? Yeah. Dilshan was your man for that. And it, he was. And he, and that that team of players that we eventually took away to Guam to try and get their first win, that team, every one of them was a coach by the end of it, really. Brilliant. You know, they were that's willing amazing. to coach. But a lot of them then left the island because that's quite commonplace. They went off to get education. They went off to do what they needed to do. Dilshan included went off to the US to study law, in fact, so, you know, you're not going to stand in his way of that. But mm. what it what it did mean is there's only a few of the guys now left on the island coaching. But football participation is still much, much bigger. It's grown every year a little bit since right. I left. So it's, it's getting better. But there's still no sign of funding. There's no... Right. They're not allowed... Um, they're not allowed to, to... Effectively, any development funding because they can't get into either Oceania football or Asia football. Because of this um, unification of the whole of Micronesia, which is logistically almost impossible. Well, one of the problems is that, certainly. But they did, you know, one of the last things I was part of was setting up a Micronesian FA that, that had the islands all involved. So football actually on Yap is much bigger now right. than it ever was. So all, actually three of the islands, Yapchuk and Pompeii, are all playing football. Great. But they have to function as one island in, or one nation in, in FIFA's eyes. They did set up an FA. They did apply to AFC. And it took seven years, and then they were told the application had taken too long, so it's been reset. 
FIFA you know, don't come out of this story very well. Th- they don't, and um, so use it, your story it's, really. It's continued that way, so it remains a thing where uh, I'm trying to help find coaches to go out there and do little stints and help mm-hmm. work with the local coaches. But we just shouldn't have to be doing this, no. you know. It's it's right. it's crazy, especially um, as FIFA's sort of front and centre talking about how they're for the they want to take the game to everyone and they're for the good oh, yeah. of the game. We, we were we were watching yeah. World Empty Cup matches really. with those signs saying, you know, for the game for everyone. And, yeah, you know, we develop football everywhere. Football for all. At yeah. the time, we were sending emails to uh, the the correct department in FIFA, the member development department, and being told we will not respond to this email because you don't have the right structure in place. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. You know, genuinely, it, it was that kind of <clears throat> that kind of red tape was put in place of, you know, talk to us when you've got your six committees in place. And it's like, I li- we're on a Pacific island here. Yeah. You know, They've got a bit we, of some sensitivity to the fact that, that you're in a complete Catch-22 situation. It's it's absolute Catch-22. Yeah. And it's, it's hit that region, you know, Tuvalu, Kiribati. There's, there's a handful of nations there and it amounts to a few hundred thousand people who want to play football and are playing football, but, they're not having any help in in mm. development, and as a result, a lot of kids won't get access to football in the way that they. It's they a shame. Deserve. It's a shame, but not not. I mean, you know, it's in spite of your best efforts as well. It should be said, you're the one who's, who's tried to more than anyone to help them with that. I keep it on going. I mean, it occurs to you every every now and again. That's the thing. I never wanted it to be something that was about my own desires and transplanting them onto their mm. the people in in that region. No. But the truth is, it's a sport that suits them really well the stature is naturally quite quite short people yeah. are generally about five for eight is is average five it's for cheap six. sport to get involved with cheap as well. sport yeah but they're all trying to play basketball a lot of the time so right. it doesn't work well volleyball doesn't work so well football really does then the natural build is good for it there's a massive problem with obesity there it's the most obese place on earth in fact those right. that, that little region yeah um partly because kids kids play sport and then they get to a point where there's nothing more to do there's no like there's no pathway mm. and so the really talented athletes have got nothing to aspire to there's no there's no sort of yeah there's no, there's no best case scenario so they give it up mm. and so i think there's a there's a a massive desire and need for football in the region um but you know there's a limit to what can be done Especially by, I just you know ran into debt through the project basically because sure of course yeah ten, I mean, ten yeah, grand's yeah. worth of debt in fact yeah. which I it took me a long time to I only paid that off I think last year um, wow and you know that that's the reality of it was it was like a gambler you know if I stopped I knew nothing was going to continue because yeah it, so I had to keep going to a point where I thought it's going to continue do you think you'll go back yeah I do actually um, but what I'm most keen to do is help other people go there, you know, help other coaches because it does, it benefits both sides, you know, it really will benefit obviously the region to have um, coaches, even not that experienced coaches, but, you know, probably more experienced than I was, but people who want to help get people play football in that region will make a massive difference. But also it it will be a massive experience for them too in the Mm. way that it was for me. It really broadened out my horizons in that, it made me see the many, many other factors of being involved in football. You know, I was yeah. I was drafting educational curriculums for school sports. Yeah, I was trying to get kit deals. I was mm. trying to do social media. I was trying mm. to get a web presence. I was trying to lobby FIFA. What you'll get is this like experience where in England and and in in the UK, you know, coaches have so few opportunities to really get well, good jobs or any jobs, but certainly jobs where you get this kind of ability to get involved in all these different aspects of football. And I found I got fascinated by all these things I never knew I was even interested in. Mm. And what I love the thought of is coaches coming over from here for a short spell over there and there's nothing off the table. You know, you could be involved in any facet of football you like Mm. and they're going to bring their own experience, their own knowledge. But also they're going to learn a lot and have this kind of amazing sort of rounding experience. Yeah, of course. And I do, that's what I'm trying to set up now because I just don't think the powers that be are going to get involved anytime soon. So it's going to have to be done at the effectively a grassroots, grassroots level. level. Yeah. yeah. Well, good on you. Look, we're going to take a little break and then afterwards we're going to come back to talk to Paul some more. Um, and I think this journey is going to take us next to Mongolia. So stick around for that. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. 
This episode of the Football Ramble is sponsored by BetterHelp. Life throws many different challenges at us, and as a result, we all have our own sources of stress. Whether big or small, those stresses can impact our lives in unpredictable ways, and if we don't address them, they can have an outsized and unwanted impact. Therapy is a safe place in which we can address these issues, learn to understand them and find ways to work through them. Having therapy can be beneficial to anybody, not just people who've experienced major traumas, even if you may have not considered it before. It could be simply a time for you to get things off your chest, a way to learn positive coping skills or how to set boundaries. Ultimately, it can be whatever you need it to be. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire and BetterHelp will match you to a licensed therapist. You can even switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com forward slash ramble today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com forward slash ramble. Welcome back to this episode of Ramble Meet, sponsored by Bet365. Um, Paul, I mentioned just before the break there that um, you clearly felt that the travel bug hadn't been satisfied. And you've a few years later or whatever, when, when was it? Kind of 2013 or whatever. Yeah. yeah you, ended, you ended up, found yourself in Lambertor in Mongolia. Yeah. Uh, which is a country that fascinates me generally anyway. Um, tell us a bit about how you managed to, to, to find yourself there. Was it, uh, when I came back from Micronesia, there wasn't, Strangely, the phone wasn't ringing off the hook with <laughs> yeah. um, and um, so I sort of I didn't really have anywhere to go for a little while football wise um, and wasn't sure what to do and then got approached sort of out of the blue by a guy called Enki Batsumba um, who sent me an email and said would you be interested in coaching a new Mongolian football team and um, obviously yeah I, I was I mean it, it for start you know as I say, I hadn't had a lot of other opportunities but, and did love travelling. But also the the idea of the team, he'd set it up to be the sort of anti-corruption team and to be the people's team. Did your, did your um, now wife go, oh, not, not again? You know what, actually, the first time she was entirely supportive yeah. in Pompeii. This time she was supportive, <coughs> but with a, a kind of resignation, a sort yeah. of, Is this, this how, it's is how be, it has uh, to be. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I, think, I think basically because she has a really good job here. Mm. And, she, and I think if she maybe didn't have a career, then it would be very different. We'd be going these places as a couple, but yeah. it, is, it is a real moment where you think, do I want to be away? Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I was, it was different to Pompeii. It didn't have that kind of childish recklessness of it. It was mm. much more reasoned, I suppose. I was thinking, well, look, I, I don't think I can get anywhere in, in England. Mm. Like, what I've done doesn't count for anything here. What would you have liked to have done when you come back to England? Would you like to have become a coach? I think so. At that time, I think I'd have loved to go and learn the ropes. That's what I really wanted was to learn from from coaches. Mm. And I found that very difficult because it was so about who you knew. Yeah, of course. I yeah. did meet a couple of lovely coaches who who would let me watch sessions, who would talk to me about sessions. Um, but generally speaking, it was quite a closed shop. And obviously what I'd done, I, I was under no illusions. What I'd done in Pompeii didn't put me on anyone's radar. Mm. But it's not like in football you can apply for assistant jobs. no. The assistant <clears throat> is, is obviously linked to the manager. Yeah. So it's unlike any other field in that way, in that there's not really a way that you can say, all right, I'm not I'm not up to coaching, you know, even at like, you know, we're looking like seventh, eighth tier level. Mm. You know, I know I'm not up to coaching that team at that time. And I say, look, I'm not saying I should manage you, but is there a way I can be a sort of Helper. secondary figure? Yeah, 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 yeah. There just isn't a way of doing that. Yeah. So I found I had no contact and um and, and was a bit frozen out. So when a team came come and give you this opportunity and you think, well, yeah, uh, you know, it's it's clearly something I'm not quite qualified to do, but at least I'll learn on the job. You know, like in Pompeii, I learned through all these mistakes and all this all this experience that mm. I just wouldn't have got in England. So, I'd... what were the main differences? Then it was a lot, presumably, a lot more organised, a lot more professional. <laughs> well, it was it was still quite chaotic, but in a very different way. So, right. uh, at the time, the Mongolian league was a mess. It was it was ridden by match fixing. Games were basically no one was watching games, and same team won every year. 
they still do actually Urchim who are mm. the, the power plant team Urchim thermal power plant number three right which I imagine for chance is just nightmare <laughs> yeah but luckily right. that doesn't really come up because about 30 <laughs> no, people no one watch watches them, them. okay um, but is, it, there, is there interest among the general population yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's the thing and this is what I was brought in to do effectively and failed to do but tried to do was that the whole idea is we create a team where people would actually get behind the local players it'd be like you know homegrown football yeah. grassroots football but trying to build local heroes for people yeah. because it, at the time and still now actually play, uh, fans went and watched Liverpool Manchester United they've organised fan clubs it's, it's quite amazing mm. they go out and watch these games in bars at weird times of day mm. and the bars are packed and these people are going nuts um, but they've never been to Manchester in the main never been to Liverpool but they are passionate mm. and yet when their champions are playing when Urchim are playing there's, there's no one watching really no one right. really cares the national team do get some crowds but it's mm. still pretty minor and what kind of um, what kind of level of the national team they've been really struggling but they've come up a lot right uh, they've got a really good coach now a german coach who's taking them it's got them a lot more organized but they at yeah. the time they were again right near the bottom of the rankings right their world cup qualification was i think the first one they were first elimination for the 2018 right. they had east timor over two legs got beaten and that Blimey, was really? that's okay. your qualification so it was a depressing environment to be in as a homegrown yeah. football. But the fact that, you know, the captain of your national team can walk down the street and not have a single person even want a selfie with him. I know there's probably a good side to that too, but it mm. felt to me like that I wanted to create something local that they could be proud of. And that's what this team that we were setting up was designed to do. It's got a population of a few million, right? So you, you think yeah. there'd be resources there? It, it's about you? three, I think it's three and a half, something yeah, like okay. that. So it's not, it's not a small country in a lot of ways. And, you know, having been one of the most powerful countries on earth at, at one time or you know the the, mm. the Genghis Khan era mm. it, it's got this um it's got a real sense of being an important country in, in a way that you wouldn't expect mm. um but we we had this I- idea of building this team of local players and trying to really celebrate local talent um and we did so in the end through uh, a TV show, a reality TV show, a sort of American Idol of football, which came about because we went to try and find a sponsor as we had no money. Mm. The sponsor was this soft drink that uh, I probably can't name <laughs> in case of legal reasons uh, because it was to all intents and purposes undrinkable. It was, it was just awful. But right. this soft drink said, we will sponsor you as long as our parent company who owned this TV channel make a documentary about you finding these players and it's sort of like a red TV show, and you're drinking our soft drink all the time. So that was how weirdly we got a sponsor. You and must a TV have never show. thought your life's ever going to turn out like this. No, and it was—I mean, it was an appalling TV show. I still—I haven't. Actually, I don't think it exists online, luckily. But it must be the worst show ever made because there, a lot of people didn't barely anyone spoke English. Yeah. I didn't speak any Mongolian when I when I tried to learn it. People laughed at me. One guy once said, uh, not harshly, said what you were saying. It wasn't awful, but. It's like a dog is speaking. <laughs> I said. I said. What do you mean by that? And he said. Well, it's you know you don't expect your dog to try and talk to you. It's yeah. like, sort of like that. And I said, Oh, right, but my pronunciation's good. And he said, It's not good. But I kind of know what you mean sometimes. Right. right so I was okay. Like, oh well, that's is it, it's a difficult language to learn. It's really hard. Is, is it based in Mandarin or no? I think it's Russian um, or it's 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 got elements of Russian in there. Element, uh, yeah, but it's it's really different. I mean, the, there are sounds that we just. We just don't naturally make. I think it's quite a notoriously difficult language. Right, okay. Uh, but but you were there for a few years, right? So you, did, you, did you make uh, any progress with that at all? Um, a little tiny bit, but still never enough to to feel confident. Um, and that was a real frustration for me because it does make it very hard when you're always working through the few people who speak English. They didn't give it, you a translator or anything like the, that? The, well, the, the guy who ran the club was effectively my translator because right. he did speak fluent English. He okay. lived in the US for 10 years. Right. But then... Uh, that caused in itself its problems because it's like it's like you know uh, Sari trying to give a training session and Abramovich is translating it. You know, sure, he, so he didn't necessarily problems, have yeah, the football yeah. knowledge, but yeah, also yeah. he thought he did. So he had yeah. his own little views. Right. So you'd you'd say something to a player who didn't speak English, uh, and then you'd see it being said again, and you think that. Ah, I don't think that's what I said to you. <laughs> yeah, and he had yeah. these very clear views about what formations we should be playing and things yeah, like that. Yeah. And I'd be thinking... But you're, at the same time, you're thinking, but I've got no way of checking that. Yeah, I had literally <laughs> yeah. no way of checking. I'd just see the player gloss over a little bit. <laughs> yeah. and, oh, my God. So, yeah, it, it, it had problems all the way down the line. But the TV show had its biggest problem in that the producer barely spoke any English. I barely spoke any Mongolian. And so they would just point a microphone at me and say, Go. And I'd just try and do, in usually in about minus 20 degrees, because it was the middle of the winter and we'd be outside, right. trying to do these links. But there was no one to edit them. So I just sort of just spoke. I think, um, I think people listening to this will s- sort of salute your 
your indefatigability. You know, just the, the idea that you are you're not going to be deterred from this. You're gonna you're gonna push through and 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 you're gonna stick it out. Well, you know, the weirdest thing was that in amongst all the mess of it, and it was really difficult a lot of the time. It was cold and and as yeah, I say, but you've gone from sunstroke and boils to minus twenty. Could you not find for your next project someone that's like a fairly temperate exactly, climate, right? Yeah, yeah. Like England. Or yeah, like. yeah, yeah. But this was the thing. I I I really struggled in that in that it, all elements of it, but. In amongst it, we were doing this TV show and it was kind of rubbish. I mean, it was a circus and the actual show was a, was nonsense. You know, they were saying to me as coach, what do you think we should do? Should we dribble round cones? And I was like, well, no, why don't we just play some games? Mm. And they were saying, okay, so first round is dribbling round cones. And I was like, right. okay, right. all right, fair enough. Yeah. So the show was rubbish. But okay. in amongst that... Did people watch these... it? Yeah, I think they did. I right. think they did. I mean, I mean, in amongst that, you'd have these amazing players who would show up and sometimes from crazy backgrounds, you know, come from the Gobi Desert from a nomadic sort of nomadic family, had heard about it from someone in the village, had come all the way to, to play and was amazing. And you think, my God, these, these stories were there, like people who'd lived in the, the yurt district. So mm. living in yurts, um, this one of the kids had dreamt of being Wayne Rooney because, you know, he once got given a sticker of Wayne Rooney and yeah. so kicked a ball against a wall on his own before school at 6am in yeah. minus 15 degrees every day. Yeah. And he was good. I mean, he wasn't amazing, but he was good. Yeah. So you'd see these players and you think, God, I really do want to make this work. Yeah. Um, so you've got, you got just enough there to keep you encouraged. Basically. Exactly. And yeah. yet the show was rubbish because you'd have the producer saying to me, you know, you must be like uh, Simon Cowell. And I'd say, oh, God. right, okay. But you, you cannot be mean to anyone because we won't like that. Right. I was saying, right, okay. (laughs) And then we'd say, you need to look like English gentlemen. So I'd be like, okay, how do I look like an English gentleman? And he'd say, your hair must be like this. And he'd literally just grab my hair and put it into a side parting. Right. And that was basically my... That was, the, that was the thing they really cared about, was that and that we had the drink in our hands the whole time. Right, okay. But everything else was just complete free-for-all. And so we'd have 50 kids just going around cones for purposes that were completely useless I mean it was completely pointless and then suddenly he'd say which one are we picking and he'd be like I I don't know let's wait until we actually see them play a game especially because this guy's come from the Gobi Desert he's come (laughs) 300 miles on a horse (laughs) maybe we'll let him have a kick around yeah exactly yeah yeah, absolutely so it was it was rubbish but in amongst there there was this really there was a purpose to it that you know we were trying to give a nation homegrown talent that we would put on TV and say you know what you can be like this because what I heard time and time again from Liverpool fans and Man United fans and all this was, well, what's the point watching our players? They're rubbish. And also from from young players was, well, we're not going to get anywhere. There's no there's no players like me in the Premier League, are there? And mm. you think, well, I suppose that's true. If you actually look at it, it's hard to have a role model if you don't have anyone. Of course, no, absolutely. representation is really important. But I suppose at least in in Mongolia, they had an understanding that there were different standards of football. Whereas in Pompeii, I don't want to go back over that kind of stuff, but in in Pompeii, they didn't really have any grasp that a Champions League final would be a far higher standard than what they were playing themselves. So you you must have felt like you've gone, you know, you've gone along a little bit on that front. Yeah, well, it was it was it was definitely a big step up. The talent level was was really much higher. You know, people were really good. They play futsal most of the year because it's so cold. Yeah. So the touch and the technique was really really strong. Um, And as you say, they knew what Premier League football looked like. So they really they really did know where their strengths and weaknesses were a lot a lot better. It was much more of a coaching challenge in that way. In Pompeii, as you say, I showed them uh, our guys. Uh, clips of videos of the World Cup final I guess it must have been 2010, 2010. I think. yeah yeah uh, and some of them quite honestly looked at it and said yeah you know we're about as good as them <laughs> and some of the others were sort of looking at it and saying well you know this is this is far too good there's no way we should you know Guam are going to be about as good as this aren't they so yeah. we shouldn't go to Guam really were you surprised at that uh no, it was it was exactly summed up that reaction. This the, the island mentality was it was very hard because you're in such a tiny pool that if you become the best at something, you either your ego gets blown completely because there's yeah. nowhere to go with that, yeah. or the opposite sort of happens when you start looking at off island competition. Yeah. They presume everyone in Guam is better than them at every other at everything right. because it's kind of a little brother kind of syndrome. Yeah, I mean they've only yeah. ever known defeat, not just in football as well. Like in most sports, in in most sports, not in every sport, but mm. they've generally only seen teams get beaten. Mm. So they think, well, everyone's better than us. And then every now and again, they get a moment where they're winning seven nil against the team that we used to play against called the Island All Stars. Mm. It was any foreigner we could convince to kick a ball around, including mm. sort of. 45-year-old who's just had a knee operation yeah. because we needed opposition. Yeah. And they're winning 7-0 and 
and the players are all starting to do these little step over tricks and right, okay. they're coming off the field. They've and, made it, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah and it's okay. like, oh, you so, know. So going back to Mongolia, what, what happened with Bayern goal in the end then? I mean, because you, you were there for a, a decent amount of time. Um, I believe that you had to deal with fraudulent agents and all sorts of stuff yeah. went on. It was, it was a lot more sinister, wasn't it, than what you were used to back in the yeah, in it, Pacific? it got very dark in a lot of ways. So we, um, it, it, by a series of quite complex processes, we... We did have a team that was decent enough. We went into the second division, which you, is your sort of entry level. Mm. Uh, well, technically it's the third division, but we won that. It was a sort of cup. We won that, got into the second division. Um, and and you're coaching them. You're the head coach. Well, no, at this time I had stopped coaching them and I had effectively become the owner of the team because right. uh, what we decided was, was best for the team was we'd have these two local coaches who were really good good players, good coaches, and we would sort of use them to champion local you know, local talent. And it made sense. You know, we were getting them to go through their AFC badges. They were good young coaches. They were better coaches than I was, I'm sure. But they also understood the players. They could speak to them. So they became the coaches. And I'd sort of stepped upstairs, effectively. Mm. Um, partly because I'd had to be so involved in the way we kept the club running. and you Moved know, upstairs already, so early in your I career. I know. Yeah. And yet, moved upstairs at a Mongolian club. It was very weird. But I effectively did it by default because the club had no way of paying me properly you know mm. we we were falling the club was was in such chaos that i was like well i'm doing a lot of the running of the club mm. and i say owning i mean there was nothing to own it had no value so there was no there was no financial side to it it, it there isn't like a, a marketable um value on the club so i effectively was was sort of yeah we had the coaches we had me and enki who were effectively running the club um and uh, and what happened was, yeah, we, we were in the second division. We finished in the playoffs uh, and lost on away goals, um, right. even though both games were played at the same venue. They were right. all played in the same stadium. We right. lost on away goals. And we didn't know that they were using the away goals rule oh, uh, really? until after the final whistle when both teams, well, we were celebrating because we won on the day and we thought, well, it's going to extra time. And we'd, we sort of clawed it back. And so the players were patting each other on the back. And right. like, Come on, we can do this. Their players were celebrating because they were like, well, We've just won. Why do you think you didn't know? Did, did they not just not tell the you? The federation was a little bit disorganised. Right. Um, okay. It, it, it wasn't corrupt. It was just. It was just. No. No one had a clue what was going on. Okay. Right. Uh, and eventually, it emerged they were up. And my overall feeling was relief because we had tried to build this kind of like you know grassroots based hmm. like small club, but the Premier League. Um, you you know you people might chuckle, but the Premier League did have what to us was quite big money being passed around. People were starting to buy in. The, the way people win the title is they buy in players from Nigeria, even Spain and sort right. of, you, you know, Croatia and places like that. Right. Um, buy them in for a season, which they treat kind of like doing a ski season or something, mm-hmm. you know, come in, win the league, go off. Mm-hmm. Um, so we didn't really want to get into that because our team just wasn't up to it. We thought, let's give it another year, let's build. Um, and then we got the message 10 days before the season, the next season was supposed to start, that we'd been promoted um, right. because one of the teams refused to take their place. Right. I think because of what we were thinking. So we said, well, look, we we don't really want this place, and they said no. You have to take it. You have to take it. You have two and you choices. were committed to only doing homegrown players. You're like almost like an athletic yeah. Bilbao kind of exactly. Fight. This yeah. was our model. Yeah. So they said, well, look, you've got ten days, but you have to take this place, um, or we'll relegate you back down past the other division. So we have mm. to go back to third division, effectively. So we we took it on, um, and that was when it all went awry, basically, because from that point on, we were just completely outmatched by the clubs in that division. But more than that, we we really struggled because we got, we marked ourselves out as an ethical club. And so we started getting, we were the go-to people. If, if things were going wrong at other clubs, people would come to us and say, look, can you help us? And we really wanted to help them. So we had two Nigerian players who showed up to training one day and we said, look, you know, what, what can we do for you? So, well, can you, can we come and play for you? We said, well, Mm. you've got clubs, you know, you, you're playing for a club. Said, no, no, we're, we've been told our visas aren't legitimate. They, the club said, we're going to sort your visas out. They haven't. The club's now saying, you've got to play for us anyway for the rest of the season and then we'll get you out of the country safely. We're right. saying, well, that well, is yeah, effectively yeah. kind of blackmail. or like, yeah. It's effectively trafficking. trafficking people, and it, yeah. apparently it's very common practice in that region is that clubs bring in these players, promise to like look after their immigration status. But as soon as they become illegal immigrants the players have nothing they can do. So these guys were sleeping in a park because right. the club had refused to pay them. And they've got no um, recourse. because No they, recourse. Yeah, yeah. And the only way they thought, the only way that they had of, of securing their safety in, in their eyes was, well, we play for this club to the end of the season, do well, and then maybe they'll honour their word and get us out of here safely. So we said to them, no, we'll, we'll sign you effectively. You know, we'll bring you in. We put them up in a house. We, we got them a new apartment. Mm. Um, but then obviously we 
couldn't play them. So we had these two players that were that were illegal players because they, they had no immigration status. So the league said, well, you can't play them, which we knew. So we had two players on our books who were unable to play, but we were looking after them. So it was them. like a sanctuary for them, essentially. Exactly. And we tried to negotiate with the embassies to make sure that they would be safely allowed to leave the country. But we were told, no, they'll have to, they'll have to serve a, a spell in prison. Blimey. We never Is spe- that what happened? No. It, well, in the end, uh, <laughs> we paid a bribe. Right, yeah. Fly them out. Okay. Yeah. But these things, these things effectively, we just couldn't deal with them financially. Yeah. You know, the amounts of money. But we found ourselves in a difficult position because we marked ourselves out as being, you know, this is the club that's going to be ethical. And, and Is a soft drink company still funding you at this no, point? No, at this point they pulled out. So who's um, funding you at this point? Nobody. And this is where it all started to get very difficult is the money was effectively coming through me, uh, Enki, the owner, and another guy who um, called Jimmy, who was a guy from the US who just emailed me, said, I really want to get involved. Right. I said to him, you, you probably don't. Do <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Um, Save yourself. But he really did. And so we'd have him on Skype, me on Skype, and you know, we'd have all these people because I, I was kind of going to and from Europe and Mongolia. And it was a crazy period, this club being run from all these different places and had set this goal of being, you know, we're going to look after the ethics of football and just didn't have the resources to do it. So looking after those players and getting them out of the country almost, almost bankrupt the club. Um, and the rest of the damage was done by the fact we, we didn't have a strong enough squad. Um, mm. And so we, we and then we lost our, our two coaches weren't allowed to coach us in the Premier League uh, because they were also playing for a team in the Premier League. So that right. was never part of our plan was we weren't supposed right. to go up. Suddenly we were up, lost both our coaches, had right. to have a, a licensed coach in place by the time the season kicked off in 10 days. Yeah. So we brought in a, a guy called Shadab, uh, Shadab Iftika, who is from Preston. Right. Um and basically, we, we put out an application set on Twitter, said that we need a coach really fast. He applied. He had this incredible CV. He'd worked with Roberto Martinez and right. uh, Benitez. He'd, he'd um, you know, he was a brilliant coach, uh, a licensed coach, um, clearly overqualified. I said in an interview, you know, phoned him up and said, no, nah, there's no way you want to do this. You know, this is this is crazy. But if you do, yeah, we'll have come. you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he was on the next flight. He said he was, I think he was in Asda. Uh, and then he just got up his phone and put up Skyscanner and he was he was out. And so he became our coach and he was the poor guy who was wrestled with this this task of trying to get us to stay up in a division we were clearly un, like, outmatched by. Um, kind of like Rafa Benitez at the moment. Yeah, a lot like that. <laughs> a lot like that, except we were Dan. Yeah, we, we okay, okay. But, you know, he did, he did an amazing job and he dealt with some things you should never have to deal with. You know? yeah. we, we were getting... Um, we we had to borrow the training pitch at, at Urchin, the champions, because we we couldn't afford a pitch of our own. Mm. And they were really nice about it, and we were never sure why. Mm. But actually, it was because we were getting loads of media. So they were trying to like say, right. well, look, they Psyching would gently say, you know, maybe you can get us some of your media. Yeah, um, we never did, but uh, and so they would just kick him off the training pitch halfway through a session. Right, and say, okay. and you're still run, running in this, as this kind of ersatz owner at the time. Yeah, so okay. I'm the one having to apologise to the coach who's just living this nightmare for right. like any organised coach is like everything is going wrong at every level you know from from sort of yeah from the fact that our players aren't, aren't good enough the fact our players you know can't even have a training session without being thrown off the training field and there's no real solution to that mm. and, and so he did amazingly um, we, there's no way he he would have had to coach someone like Mongolia if there wasn't a massive racism problem in English football that's yeah. the truth of the matter yeah. when I saw his CV and I said well why are you, why are you applying for this job? You know, we can pay you five hundred dollars a month. Yeah, you're going to live in Mongolia. Like, honestly, you, you your CV's too good for this. And he was saying, you know, no, I, I want to do it. I want to yeah, do it. Okay, right. And it's only later on when you sort of see, um, it it becomes quite clear he's he's not getting any opportunities in the UK because he has effectively he has a Muslim name and yeah. um, he has a a beard and he's Asian and yeah. and that people are not are put that's off a, by been a that's, that's the reality of it I, th- yeah. I think and for a long time I was quite naive about that but I think I've seen some of the jobs he's applied for and been refused and thought like this is wow, okay. not even getting interviews for jobs where right, yeah. you know he's clearly overqualified and yeah. so um, that was our we were very lucky to get him but he he, he was a brilliant character to have in Mongolia sort of the most typical sort of football real football lover football person just dealing with this crazy world where 
the federation didn't realize there was an international week one week and he had to tell them <laughs> okay, this right. kind of world where, right, okay. and i think he loved it in his own way yeah. that he's just like how is this country how does it work yeah and, but in some way it really suited him that he, but you so you've moved on from mongolia now did you leave under a cloud or was it is it difficult to, to to part ways what what was the situation uh, no i mean it was it you was came a, to the end of the line it was a it? very difficult season that and it it we shut it down after that me and jimmy who'd done most of the running um took the decision that the club had to had to stop functioning because really there was no money it would have to continue coming from from our our pockets we we don't have any money to put into it but also we didn't feel that a club could function in that premier division um and nurture young talent yeah i still feel that <clears throat> because every team is just bringing in six japanese players six nigerian players yeah so it's a 10 year 15 year process to really start to change that mentality um, but there's no real, there's no real way that we were going to be able to do that. I think because right. no one was going to sponsor us. We'd set ourselves up as anti-corruption. So you know, the time that we helped those two players out, the two clubs that were responsible for those players despised us, but also had people who were within the federation. So right. we just made we made enemies. Mm. So long term, it was not really viable. No, and I think that's what's the problem. If you mark yourself out, I mean, we never called ourselves an anti-corruption club, but if you mark yourself out as an ethical club you are effectively throwing stones at everyone else in the room, aren't you? Sure, so, you're, you're automatically accusing them of being corrupt. Precisely. Yeah, so when yeah. You, yeah, as I say, when you when you look after players they've maybe treated badly, they're not going to think, oh, good on you, you know, yeah, we've learned the error of our way. Yeah, 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 yeah. Next time we get a chance and yeah. we're in that federation meeting, we're going to make sure you get done for this. Yeah, done okay. For that. And that happened all the time you know, with our yellow cards and our red cards and we, we really? were just getting blitzed. But, you okay. know, everyone always thinks that about their club, but genuinely we were... I we believe just, you. We, for what it's worth, Paul, I believe We were not that. very welcome in yeah. Mongolia, really. Um, people who've been listening for the last 45 minutes or so will say, will we'll, we'll know by now that you're not a man to sit still for very long. Mm. And so now we come up to the present, I think, which is your work with Kanifa, the, for want of a better phrase, and I'm sure you'll clarify it, a kind of alternative FIFA, yeah. would you say? Um, I was at a Kanifa World Cup game last summer at Bromley. Um, great to watch great to be there um, and that's all you're doing you're, you're providing football and tournaments and um, legitimacy for, for teams or groups of people who maybe don't have the the, the, the recognition elsewhere yeah I mean it's not all I, I came in it was founded in 2013 I came into Kanifa in I think 2017 so I came in after the Mongolia experience had ended um, mm. and I'd, I'd obviously had an eye on non-FIFA football for a long time and when I was in Pompeii there was only this really sketchy organisation called the NF Board the Nouvelle Federation Board based in Belgium mm. and they were just very odd difficult people to deal with but I got the impression it was mostly a uh, a keyboard thing like there wasn't very yeah. much actual action there so uh, when I heard about Conifa being launched um, I kept an eye on it and it was clearly something a bit more serious well organised and Give us an idea of the type um, of teams that will be involved So you got Abkhazia, for example, and so you've got Abkhazia, Transnistria, um, you've got Nagorno-Karabakh. So you may not know necessarily of those. I don't think I did before I joined, but these are kind of semi-recognised states that mm -hmm. exist. Those are all based in Europe, but, you know, believe themselves to be autonomous, rule themselves, but are sort of frozen zones where they're not internationally recognised. Mm -hmm. Somaliland, similarly, is effectively ruling itself, but is regarded as part of Somalia by the US, the UK, the rest of the world. And you've got a similar um, situation with Matabeli Land, is it? Part of Zimbabwe? Well, Matabeli Land's part of Zimbabwe. Yeah. So um, so the other, yeah, the other thing that, that Conifa represents is, is, is nations, states and peoples. So uh, it can be a UN-recognised nation in some case, you know, Tuvalu, the, the place that we mentioned in the Pacific yeah. that can't get in, they, they can come into Conifa. They're eligible as well. But you also have... Uh, minorities, ethnicities, often persecuted peoples. So as you say, Matabele land, you've got the Ndebele people who were the, the people that were massacred by Mugabe, effectively. Mm. He, they suffered the genocide. Mm. Uh, they can represent themselves through our model. Similarly, the Rohingya can compete as the Rohingya rather mm. than they would have to be Myanmar or, yeah. you know, which, which, which they just wouldn't do. Tibet, yeah. so Tibet is probably the, the yeah, poster yeah. boys for us yeah. in a way. So, you know, Tibet are able to compete in our system. They would never compete in FIFAs. And so, th so that's what that's what Kanifa does. And and um, I I joined the organisation basically because I believed we should bring a World Cup to London. I said, you know, I've got an idea of how we can do this. Um, contacted Sasha, who's the, the Secretary General, who does pretty much everything. He's yeah. absolutely... And this is a labour of love for, for, for you both. For all of us, yeah, okay. all of us. So Sasha's a football shirt collector who... Um, collected all the FIFA shirts and then collected all the non-FIFA shirts. And when the NF board, the past organisation, 
basically blew up in this massive sort of argument at their AGM. Nothing existed. So Sasha just started emailing the the people he got shirts from and said, you know what, let's set up a new one. Yeah. Uh, and he has become this kind of expert on international geopolitics. And he, he's sort of the, the person who binds it all together. But now we've got, what, 54 members across the world, away from sort of indigenous people in Australia, um, all the way over to, you know, Cascadia in the West Coast of the USA. And yeah. it, it's, it's a fascinating it, project. It, it's kind of, um, it's a real labour of love. As I say, we're all volunteers and, and we we're constantly struggling to make it happen. But but my my passion was to bring this World Cup to London. I just thought, you know, this is the best place we could do it. Mm. Um, and that became sort of eight months, I guess, of, of mm. maybe 10 months of work and just the chaos that that comes with organising a tournament, the visas, the accommodation. And we, we set out, you know, to do it in non-league stadiums, but, you know, non-league stadiums with a, with a bit of a soul to it, you know, clubs that meant something. Mm. Um, and so we, we ended up at, you know, places like Enfield Town, who are amazing, um, Bromley, as you say, Sutton, mm. uh, Carshalton, you know, all over. And, it was and they're all, and they were all open to the idea of, of being involved. Yeah, they all were. We had varying levels of excitement from different clubs, but the mm. Enfield Town were amazing. They really championed it. They have a massive Northern Cypriot community there mm-hmm. and they're one of our teams. Mm-hmm. Um, so North Cyprus, basically, it was like a home game for them. Yeah, they, they lost in the final, there. did they not? They did. They, uh, the final was a terrible game. Yeah. It was an amazing tournament and the final was this dismal nil-nil draw but we had 4,000 people pretty much there amazing I think officially we had less than that that's amazing it was like this packed event and you know that was what was lovely seeing the Tibetan community come out seeing hundreds of Tibetans like banging Tibetan drums singing folk songs the Tamil community were brilliant and you know that's what I loved was people celebrating their identity and and that is effectively what Kanifa Kanifa tries to do is just give people whose identities are forbidden in in the FIFA model a way to say well I want to play for for this identity that's who I am and in a way, it sounds very simple, but it actually creates just a world of headaches. It's, it's really interesting that um, obviously I meet lots of different types of people doing doing this type of show, and to me, it feels it's quite it's quite warming, really, and fulfilling to know that football for you is a way to champion the downtrodden, champion people that have forgotten about, and, and you're using football in a way to to try and lift everyone that you can. Right? It's not for you. It's not a case of oh, do you know what? I love football, so I want to get a free ticket to the Champions League final and watch and and, and, and all that. You actually do use football in a really positive way. I think like no one else I've met. That's really that's really nice of you to say. I don't really I suppose I don't really think of it that that often. I mean it's just the the bit of football that appeals to me is is seeing yeah, seeing people feel like they are able to express themselves and yeah. and I guess yeah I guess but it can be a force for good right among all the corruption be. among all the multi-millionaire billionaire owners it can also still in 2019 be a real force for good in the world it can and I think that's why that's why we keep doing it as I say like you know we all do it as, alongside our, our day jobs we're all we're constantly fighting battles the London World Cup it was six months of it felt like just smacking your head against a wall yeah. it was one problem after another even during the tournament if anyone saw me during the tournament I looked like a wreck I looked mm. just just I looked a mess because mm. you you're taking on all these responsibilities you have none of the backup that you get with any FIFA event yeah. everything was to the edge financially everything you know anything could go wrong at any point mm. and that's the reality is as soon as you take on this project it sounds Kanifa sounds very un uncontroversial in certain ways. I mean, you know, some of our teams are Yorkshire and Cornwall, you know, it's it's just, you know, if you feel that is your identity, then represent, let that, uh, give you a chance to represent that. But then you actually look at just simply every time you want a sponsor, you also allow Tibet to be in there. So no one who deals with China wants to touch you. Right. You know, everything, everywhere you go. You had embassies trying to stop this tournament in London. We had, the Home Office didn't really want it to happen. They tried to stop visas. You had just every problem you could throw. And all we're really trying to do is say to people, you know, you feel you're Tibetan, play for Tibet. Mm. And I know it sounds very naive, but Mm. it's it's why as an organisation we'll always be the underdogs and we'll always be short of money and we'll always be struggling because... Mm you can't have it two ways you can't be sort of bankrolled by Qatari millions yeah. and also be sort of thinking about the soul of football um, so fair to say that you, you are attracted to a, a football based project with as many barriers in place as possible <laughs> I don't naturally look for that <laughs> yeah, um, it, yeah I, I think it's just uh, yeah it's always been that way with the, the projects I've gravitated towards I've always looked for for things that I believe in and I'm a bit of a sucker for causes. I think, yeah. you know, I am. It's it's the irony of Conifer is that we're apolitical, technically. We mm. we don't actually 
make political stances. No. But just simply the fact we exist and we're allowing to Can get be to seen play, as one. it's pretty clear that yeah. there is a sort of yeah. element of politics there. But you're not passing judgment on the situation there. You're no. you're saying this is a this is a, a, a people who identify themselves as this and so they should be be able to represent themselves. Yeah, but that difference is so it's wash, so though, fine, no. isn't it? <laughs> okay, yeah. Yeah, we weren't we weren't saying free Tibet, but we allowed a Tibetan flag to be raised at a match and fine. for you know, for the Chinese government, that's that's a tiny distinction. In this environment, um, the simplest of, of actions can become a political statement, effectively. It really can. And I, I think, I understand why it doesn't exist in the FIFA model. I think it can't. You even get someone like Pep sort of mention his, his view on Catalan independence mm. and it becomes already a little bit of an issue. And you understand that because it's, it's not that footballers don't have views and don't have ethics. It's... Um, it's simply a massive network of of sponsorships, and mm. you know a footballer could say one thing about you know wherever Tibet, and they could lose four hundred grand's worth of sponsors in a day, theoretically. Yeah, and I, I I'm not the person who's going to say they should be doing that. It's totally no. understandable they don't, and I think that's why you also need us as a complementary model that says, you know what, we're allowing people to to represent those identities, but that doesn't mean we don't believe the FIFA model works or that mm. it should exist. Uh, mm. But it does very much mean that that we're we're the ultimate marketable unmarketable concept in that everyone yeah. who hears it thinks oh yeah you know that makes sense i'm sure you'll sort of make that work yeah. and then the reality is you scratch down and you think at every turn the big the bigger powers don't really want this to happen you know that it's not yeah it's not easy to no. find either finance or support from governments or you know it's it's difficult. But you mentioned at the top of this that it's ten years in July that you went to Pompeii for the first time. Yeah. <clears throat> and so the last ten years presumably haven't been boring. No. So so what what's what do you what do you want to work on next? What's next on your what's next on the list? Well it's um Football on the Moon, presumably something yeah, the moon would be logical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel the moon has been so underrepresented. Be a better climate than Pompeii, presumably. <laughs> yeah. I feel like that will happen eventually. But it'll be one of those ones like they play the Super Cup on the Moon. Yeah, I can imagine that. Someone's already played golf up there, of course. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, it wouldn't be the first sport. It'd be it'd be one of those ones where you make that your fortress as a club. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it'd be a tough away trip. That you can yeah. imagine two hundred fifty thousand like, miles each way. You can imagine Pochettino yeah. sort of mumbling. Well, it's yeah. not ideal to have to go to the moon on a Tuesday night, but no, um, yeah. you know. And I'm worried about the muscular atrophy of the players. You know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but seriously, what are you going to do um, next? Well, because I think I'd be interested. To, to, in, I think we'd be all here at the Ramble be very interested. There's always um, there's always new projects, and I think with Kanifa, you know, we we're still very much active, and we've got our World Cup in Somaliland uh, next year. We've mm-hmm. got our Euro in Nagorno-Karabakh, which is probably very Googleable. I imagine. Right, yeah. um, so you're taking the World the Kanifa World Cup next year, so it'd be yeah, next so it's every year, two years. 20, uh, yeah, 2020 um, into Somaliland. To Somaliland, and you're running that. Uh, I'm not personally, but but the, yeah, that's where it will be. Um, wow, that sounds really and interesting. We are building towards the first women's World Football Cup, which is Great. long overdue, but um, that should be next year as well. Um, but then in terms of my own personal plan, I'm very much getting more involved in a way in the Pacific in that I'm I'm really trying to find the framework to start sending more coaches over to that region to have that experience that, that I had. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, and just not to give up this fight that, you know, this, mm. this very small, relatively small part of the world, but, um, but amazing part of the world just can't continue to be ignored. And I think, I think however little it feels that I can do, um, it just takes a few people to think. Well, you know, I'll go out and give it a go. Yeah, give that a go. And mm. um, and who knows? I'd I'd love one day to think that you know you'd have you'd have some support for football in that region, and maybe even their own competitions and qualifiers and it, the Paul Watson it can Cup. Happen. Could happen. <laughs> I'd make them call it that. It would, yeah, go, and, and, and the cup so. itself would be exactly my shape. It'd be that, my full size replica of me in gold. You know, in red because you're still fully oh, sunburnt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah the sunburnt me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Scare any player lifting it. Paul, it's been an absolute pleasure. It's been absolutely fascinating. No, no exaggeration to say the most fascinating one we've done of these in a long, long while. So, um, people listening should go out and buy up Pompeii. It's P O H N P E I. Paul's story about his um, frankly ridiculous trip and stay uh, trying to um, found football again on, 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 on a small Pacific island. Uh, keep in touch with him online. You'll put Paul underscore underscore uh, C Paul Watson, underscore C right? underscore Watson, Watson on yeah. Twitter. I wasn't the first Paul Watson. No, okay, right. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And um, please do support Kanifa as well because they do some fine work for, for a lot of people who, who just want to play football and aren't able to. So um, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. And we'll hope to catch up with you again soon. This episode of Ramble Meets was sponsored by Bet365. This was a Radio Stakhanov production. production.